No compliments for me, please. No, no compliments, compliments ever. Ever. This is Making It Up, episode 195, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off in each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, shop discounts, and more. Let's get into it. No compliments ever. Ever. Off air. I told Eugene that he looks nice. And then he was like, don't sweet talk me. Because Sharice is late. I am late. Like I am late. 40 no minutes excuses. Late. 40 pretty minutes late, late. Pretty late. I got caught by a colleague. 50 minutes literally late. Literally on my way out the door. What does she want? It better have been important. It kind of was, but also isn't something I want to disclose on air. All so right. I can't talk okay, about fine. it. Okay, fine. Can't talk about it. I promise I am not making it up. All right, should we jump into it? Because I got somewhere to be in 40 minutes. My grandma's 90th birthday. 90! Oh my god! Nine zero. Yeah. Do you ever ask your grandma how it feels to be the age that she is? Nope. Have you ever tried? I don't know. No, no. You wouldn't ask that question. I'll ask it tonight. Okay. I'd be curious to know. That's a long time. That's a really long time. That is... Yeah, that is a very long time. She's seen a lot of things. I mean, I'm impressed. 90. Has that been two world wars? Yeah, definitely. Oh, wow. Crazy. A lot of wars. Wait, has it? Yes. Is it about it? She was born in what? 31? 1931? Ooh, just kidding. I'm wrong. No, the first world war is 1914-15. Yeah. The second right. world war is 1945. World war one is 1914. Oh, so like she actually lived through that then. That's actually kind of crazy now I think of it. I've never like aligned it to... Big, huge global events. historical events. events. Yeah. I mean, she's lived through a lot. I mean, maybe not like personal experience of it, but the span of her lifetime has included a lot of crazy shit that happened in the world. Totally. Well, happy birthday to... Yeah, I'll tell her Eugene's that my grandma. friend who I... Tell her... Run a podcast with No, is, no, 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 no. Tell her that all of your many fans and followers... And friends all say happy birthday. Okay. Maybe she's impressed with your range of influence. Okay. But doubtful. All right, you first or me? You go first. Okay. So my subject this week is one of personal interest. I hardly You don't even have any notes, notes out either. I do, ha- I do need notes because I'm going to quote okay. from the subject in a second, but I can do the intro without it. I stumbled across an author's newly launched Substack, which on the surface of it does not sound a lot like something that we should be talking about on this podcast. I'll tell you a little bit about the author first because I assume that you've not read him. I don't know if that's unfair of me to say. The author is George Saunders. I read a couple of his books. What's his claim to fame? Like what is a book that he's... uh... He's probably done. the first one is a collection of short stories called 10th of December. That's the one that probably a lot of people know. And then his 
novel from 2017, Lincoln in the Bardo, won the Man Booker Prize, which is a quite well-known book-related award. He is a American author, short stories, essays, novels. He's also a professor at Syracuse University. He's been awarded for many different book and writing-related things. I only say this so that you have some context as to why this is interesting. Like, he's not just yeah. any man off the street. Like, he is someone quite reputable that people respect, enjoy his reading and writing, consider him to be a good professor. And he has launched a short story reading club on Substack. It is called Story Club with George Saunders. It was just launched on December 3rd and has, I'm certain, many thousands of subscribers. Crazy. Don't know the exact number and loads of comments as well. Do you feel that if you're able to pull someone in through your writing, that it's a much stronger social connection than other mediums? If as you're, opposed to what? Like my looks? No, no, no. Like a photographer, for example. Like, do you think people are more willing to pay for like a writer? Because I think there's so much effort that goes into writing and then reading it, actually, more effort that goes into reading something today that if you follow somebody, it's actually a really strong connection. Yes. And it's not so much. Um, I, I don't know if it's really about like the talent, but just the nature of writing and reading is that you can have so much more depth in your relationship with someone or the depth of a conversation over words as opposed to a photo. Because as explain? good as a photo is, mm -hmm. I think there's a limit to how long you can spend talking about a photo, especially if you're not really trained in photography or visuals. I don't know if the average person is going to spend that much time discussing the color composition or mm -hmm. framing of a single photo. However, on the other hand, if there's like a 1500 word essay about the future of work, let's say just random topic. There's loads that can be said based off of whatever the writing is. Even if you disagree, there's a lot to be said. But for a photo, just to use that example, if you don't like it, how much can you say about you not liking it? So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this story club. Start on December 3rd. He has laid out what it's going to be about. I want to tell you the inspiration he had for this. He published a book recently titled a Swim in a Pond in the Rain, which was an exploration of seven short stories by four Russian authors. So essentially, the book is a close reading and critique of four different authors, not himself. Mm -hmm. Right. And he wrote this in his first Substack issue. These were really nice letters to get. By far the most passionate, grateful, engaged, urgent response to my work I've ever received, and they spoke to the existence of a community of people who love the short story. People who don't see stories as separate from their real life, but essential to it. Hence, this newsletter, Story Club. The plan is to pick up where that book left off, widening beyond the Russians into stories from other times and traditions. I see us working together on some essential questions. Why do certain stories compel us to finish them? How can something entirely made up change the way we think and feel about the real world? What can we learn about the mind by watching it read and process a story? Increasingly, creative writing is understood to be a sort of adorable niche venture relegated mostly to MFA programs. But in my view, this underestimates the essential importance of storytelling to a culture. Hmm. So he's laid it out. Essentially, he's going to run 
this Substack like a course that he's teaching, similar to how he teaches reading and writing at Syracuse University, and it's open to everyone to join in. I, I mean, I'm biased because I already read this author and liked his work prior to being introduced to Story Club. And you're also a teacher. And I'm also a teacher. But for me, this format and Substack like takes all of the boxes for what I want. And right now it's free and it's going to go behind a paywall in about a month. Like he's already told people straight up. And I'm, I'm prepared to pay for this material. Yeah. And I suppose on one hand, I chose it to talk about because I'm genuinely excited. You I are excited. feel that making it up listeners would be interested in this sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, just going off of the premise of what I just read about his position on the benefit of stories. Like, I assume that people who follow Macon and are writing are interested in stories in a similar way. Yeah. I mean, stories are essentially the backbone of every single thing you do. If you're starting like um, a creative business, you need to understand what your story is. If you're doing a marketing campaign, which is obviously a smaller atomized version of what a brand does and represents an extension, you also need to know what a story is. It's kind of cliche because storytelling is this like thing that we always put very closely to whatever creative output we do. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to like do do on this, but it's it's cliche to us. But it was interesting that in Saunders first issue, he wrote about story as though he did have to convince people that story is important. I think story, a sort of process that you need to output is one thing that's different than just the passive consumption of a story. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I think it's different when you actually like put it right in your face. Like, Hey, you, this is like the importance of a story. But in reality, you kind of go through the process and I'll use the word consume. Like you're basically consuming a story and it'll hit you if it's a good story, regardless whether you like it or not, it'll just, you will have a reaction to it. Exactly. You, it's just human nature that, you are told a story and you have some emotional feeling, some assessment as a result of what you were listening to. And I think you're, you, oh, this is another assumption of what you might like, but he, Saunders wrote this that resonated with me. After all, everything is a story. Every thought, every belief, every memory, every love, every bias, and every story is constructed by a certain projective quality of the mind. How do we know things about the world? The mind makes scale models and we test them out. So the quality of our scale model maker determines the relative accuracy of the resulting model, which in turn determines how close to the truth we end up living. That is how we tell and receive stories is central to how we think, which in turn determines how well, how lovingly, how fully we live. And I think that's true and is similar to what you said as well, that stories is not, it sounds cliche in our creative world but it's not just a marketing device or it's a cultural device element of brand it's not even just a cultural device it's a human approach to life that comes very intuitively like i like what he says that stories are the foundation of our beliefs and biases like you know we're going to talk about web three later whatever we choose to believe about Web3, as an example, or something else, is a story we tell ourselves about a possibility. Yeah. 
whether good or bad or uh, some combination of something that has our own experience and then what we imagine. Yeah. Right. And I, I just like this concept. So he's in this subsect going to take readers through a close reading of fiction stories, which might not be everyone's cup of tea. But I'm compelled by this introduction, which is to tell people that by closely reading and critiquing fiction stories, you can actually improve or be more aware of how you think in life. Yeah. So I, his sub stack is that's not- That's super valid, yeah. Yeah, his sub stack is not just for, like he says, you know, it's not just for MFA writing people, or if you were interested in an MFA, it could be for it's anyone. It's like a philosophical take on life in a way. Yeah. Because the way I look at it is having a good story or crafting a good story requires intentionality. And then that in itself spills over into intentionality around your life. As you say, intentionality about your life. And to be more specific, intentionality in how you think about different things or break down biases that you have or beliefs that you have. So I highly recommend it. How much is the Substack going to be? In his intro, he said $6 a month, yeah, super but it hasn't reasonable. been launched officially yet. Right now it's free. And so, I mean, that's usually the business model, right? Anyone can Pull go in. and test out the waters. And there's about six or seven issues already. He's quite rapid. I'm I'm publisher. always curious, like people like that, if they just churn it out like clockwork, because it's just a muscle you've developed, right? I think so. In this case, I think so. Not to say that writing comes easily to him, but I think it, in his experience, there's a, there's a built-in self-discipline to get it done. I think the thing that is always most challenging is when you do something for so long, like he's obviously, I assume, in his, you know, 50s or 60s. 60s. Yeah, like, you know, one thing that always interests me is like someone that's done something for so long and it's something that's quite tangible like writing is kind of like photography it's like a singular act right it's not like oh you're um like a ceo or something that has a lot of intangible things and there's yeah. different problems every time yeah like you're actually doing something that's very similar over the course of in this case six decades or yeah. not not six decades no, no, but you know I, what i mean I get like, what you mean when you break it down it is the same activity repeated on a regular schedule yeah man that's crazy because even myself like you know I feel like I get bored of doing the same thing, but maybe the boredom is different because the boredom isn't really because the act was ever necessarily enjoyable. It's more like I, I've, I've almost extracted all the, the interest out of it, which I do a lot. Like I'll just consume the shit out of something. I'm like, I'm to move on to something else. That is interesting. I mean, I think it really comes down to personality because I imagine people like, Saunders, who's spent his entire career writing, there's a lot of pleasure or something that compels you to just minutely refine what you're doing. And yeah. you see this a lot with things that are sort of craft based, like think of a potter. Yeah. They, there are these. Or a chef or something that, you know, yeah. does a yeah. singular dish. Who's okay with, not just okay with, not like I'm settling for this, but these people get a lot of joy out of really dwelling on the tiniest of details or repeating the same motion until something else clicks in your brain. I don't know. I don't, I, I feel like I'm also kind of like you in the sense that my career or not to say career, like in a really 
professional way, but just the things I've been doing have changed a lot over the years. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't say that I did one thing on a weekly basis for like the last nine years. Yeah. Like even things that were once enjoyable, it's like not enjoyable anymore. I guess the only thing I've done over the course of, you know, a very long stretch of time is like play a sport. I think maybe, you know, what keeps me a little bit motivated or, or interested in, in soccer or football is like, I think that because it's so demonstrable in terms of like the skills that you're doing, it's actually a lot easier for you to track your progress. Mm. I think, it, you know, it's like, it's never this, but you know, there's, there's certain decisions you make and, and the outcomes of those decisions that you can keep in the back of your mind. Oh, like last week I made a mistake. And this week I didn't, I didn't repeat that mistake because of what I learned last week. Mm. And sometimes I think it's a little bit more difficult because, you know, I use a lot of sports analogies, but there are only X number of things that can happen within a soccer pitch. Like I, almost every single thing that's ever happened has probably happened. Like you kick the ball in the air and a gust of wind blew it into the goal. Like I'm sure that's happened, right? Because of the set parameters and rules. So I think that's why within that, it it creates a sense of, um, it, it creates a, a, a sort of pathway towards developing and getting better. But when you're in the real world where there are no technical rules, like, yes, there are rules like that govern society, but it's like, you know, everything is a little bit different and it's harder for you to reference back to something you did in the past because, oh, well, you know what? I made this mistake, but then this time something else happened because, you know, there was a delay in shipping that was out of my control. Do you know what I mean? we're just not old enough, though. I don't know. I mean, we're also, we're not the youngest out there, but we, you know, relative to your grandma, who we already said is 90 years old, yeah. like there's still a lot of life ahead of us. And so maybe in another 20 years, actually, you will feel like most things that can happen have happened to me. One other thing that I thought was interesting about Saunders launching this Substack was someone who doesn't have to be a part of the passion economy finding it attractive enough to involve himself in it. Like Saunders is, he doesn't actually financially need this. Mm-hmm. He's well published, just published a popular book. Is His teaching. books probably continue to sell. Exactly. Um, so rule out the financial side. In terms of audience, he has readers who love him. He regularly, again, teaches. So he's in a classroom. Doesn't really need the audience side. And yet there is enough attractiveness to this Substack model to I think the openness of it and also the potential I hesitate to use this word community yeah that might come out of doing the story club on Substack because he's not really a published digital author no and by virtue of that he probably has not had two-way dialogue with his quote-unquote community or readers besides in the classroom setting which is but even that's different yeah, yeah exactly yeah. That's a very specific very demographic. Parameters. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like that's on a bigger picture sense interesting to me that, you know, passion economy by no means is out of vogue. Yeah. That there continue to be people who find that it offers you something, creative satisfaction, or in terms of, like you said, two way communication that you can't get somewhere yeah. else. If you were to start a Substack, on a single topic, what would it be? How often do I have to publish? You decide. But you do have to publish at some type of set frequency. The one that 
would be the easiest for me is probably, yeah, that's a tough one actually. Cause now, now that I, there's certain things I've done in my life that I thought I could do for the rest of my life. And now it's like, you know, increasingly not the case. And it may be because new things have popped up in my life that are more interesting. I don't know anymore, actually. The, like I said, the only sort of through. What if I tell you, you only have to do it for six months? Oh, well then that would open up pretty much anything and everything would be on the table. Okay. Let's hear it. But the one, but you I, have to, okay. I want to go back to Fine, the original the, challenge. All right, right, go ahead. Go ahead. The original challenge, I think that what I like to really do is analyze outcomes so that whatever I analyze, it could be a marketing campaign. It could be like, but I think in terms of like cadence and just ease of doing it, probably like analyzing goals or like, you know, breaking down the tactics of how something happened in like a soccer game. Right. A football when you match. say goals, you mean football. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I, I kind of thought maybe football would be up there because it would be something that you could have. That's a the only thing I could think about. In and just like write whatever you wanted about. I just I'm, I guess also what because. About you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was interested just in this idea. Like, I think Saunders might not do this indefinitely, like because he sort of structured it as a term, as a course. And I like this idea of a single topic, regular like frequency challenge. The thing that I am most interested in that does not overlap with anything I do for money is video games. So I could probably put out a regular newsletter. I I don't know who the Could you be a video game be. reviewer? I could. But does I would be an indie games reviewer. That's what I would how, do. I would buy that like That seems like a lot of time and effort. I would buy like Steam games that are below 5 USD and then okay. review them. But I would probably break it down. It wouldn't be like a different game every issue because that's that's too much time commitment, as you said, right? So maybe like three issues per game, analyzing different aspects of it. Yeah. That could be fun. I suppose it's also relevant because Eugene and I are considering the next phase of this podcast. It's almost 200 episodes. We are very close to 200. Yeah. I think it's time. For something else or just some kind of. It's funny because I was like, I didn't want to allude to it, but then change? you kind of brought it up. Well, that's, I, I feel like the I format, bring it up. I think the format in itself is also a little too broad. Yes. In terms I of agree. the fact that it's so broad allows us to like chat shit week in, week out, but it, it's not a great product. It could be better. It could be better. It's not a shit product. It's all right. It's just I mean, not it's focused gone, enough. We've, we've made it to 200 episodes with the format that it is. But I think for our sakes and for the people out there, uh, could be something well, I different. Well, guess, I guess we didn't align on the PR strategy, but I guess you've just done it for we us. We have a PR strategy? No, we don't. Which is a non-existent one. All right. Anyway, moving on to your subject. All right. My subject this week is in many ways, just an encapsulation and recap of the last few weeks within this crypto corporate metaverse world. So I'm going to start off with the driving catalyst for this discussion. Like I said, over the last few weeks, there have been a handful of corporate company meets blockchain metaverse moves. Uh, you had Adidas who introduced the new Board Aid Yacht Club profile picture that they purchased which is kind of weird. It's like, hey, me showing off something I bought, not something I created. 
Um, they've been working with a few crypto influencers as well, like G Money, who's like a, a pretty well-known NFT guy. Nike connected with Roblox to create Nike Land, which is a space within Roblox. That's not inherently like crypto. It's more like metaverse related. And then the biggest piece of news was that Nike bought Artifact, which you may have seen this name floating around. It's R-T-F-K-T, Artifact. This was um, pretty big news, I think. It, yeah, I would say it's pretty big news because it's more of a validation. But then I think- Oh, I just mean big in the sense that lots of folks who might not have been paying attention oh, yeah, yeah. to the space. crypto metaverse space were aware of this yeah. news. So Artifact is in many ways like a- I don't know. I don't want, I don't want, I'm not, I don't want to catch shade for this, but like basically. Do you want me to find the they do official great description? It's like basically a metaverse studio, like content studio in a way. Like they create sneakers. Their description is creators of virtual sneakers and collectibles, merging realities in fashion and gaming. Ooh. Which inherently is like more so like a consolidation because I think they're the best branded. They did stuff like Jeff Staple and whatnot. As in but that's I, why you think Nike acquired them. Yeah. yeah. They're the most well-known in the space. Like I'm, there are tons of like really interesting individuals, but they aren't sort of a collective mm. of sorts. And they also recently did this big project called Clone X, which is like basically a profile picture uh, project that was really well done. The 3D renders look really nice. They worked with Takeshi Murakami, a Japanese artist, on that as well. Wait, but, do you mean Takashi? Takashi Murakami? It sounded like Takashi, but whatever. Yeah, Takashi Murakami. I might have honestly slurred my words a little there. One thing I wanted to bring up was there are a series of interesting discussion points that have kind of come up from this. I'm going to read a few from uh, the Twitter user IMDC Investor, and he talks a lot about the crypto space beyond just like the cultural aspects of NFTs, but also stuff like legislation. And these two interesting tweets uh, caught my attention. Popular Probably unpopular question. What happens if new entrants prefer corporate-backed profile pick slash NFT community projects over others? Sounds dumb to most early participants, but possibly not to newcomers. And tweet number two, it is critically important that we do not allow Web3 to make the same mistakes which allowed Web2 to be 100% controlled by roughly five centralized corporations. If we don't, then Web3 will not be an improvement. It will be a yoke to control us further. That is why decentralization matters. This obviously, he's a decentralization maximalist who really wants to push this. I don't, agenda makes it sound like it's nefarious. It's more like this is his like philosophy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you know why it's interesting is that a lot of people looked at Nike's entry into the space by the acquisition of Artifact to be like a win. But once you start looking at the legalities of it, people are now questioning like, oh, you know what? Like, there are a lot of things that I can't do with my recently acquired clone X piece because Nike's legal team has come in and sort of like put their foot down. One of the big sort of selling points of Web3 was like ownership over it, right? It wasn't that you're- Individual you ownership. Individual ownership. But now if you look at the sort of fine print or the, the legal documentation around the clone X project, it's like you can't fractionalize this. Like there's a lot of things you cannot do. Because now it's Nikes. I think this one tweet with this guy, Beanie Maxi said was interesting. This entire acquisition is a complete cultural misfit. ETH literally flowed out out of our favorite Web3 projects into something owned by a centralized corp. We ceded control. Not a good day. I worry increasingly about institutions buying their way back to the old system. This is my understanding of the concern in a nutshell. 
which is that right now Web3 is being co-opted in a way by large brands and corporations that are using this Web3 veneer on a surface level, on maybe like a visual aesthetic level, as opposed to actually supporting the Web3 philosophy and structure. And in fact, these activities like Nike purchasing Artifact go in the opposite direction of what Web3 maximalists would like it to go in. Yes. And I think in short, like when it comes to that stuff, one of the big, big discussions right now is around, you know, we're trying to move away from Web2, which is kind of what the quote mentioned. If we allow people to come in and validate us, them coming in is obviously their prerogative and their in their interest. But then if we let them simply come in with open arms, because it validates the space we're trying to build, you might be in for a bit of a surprise because ultimately, because ultimately what happens is that their intentions are not going to be the same intentions of an individual. Yep. Right. Yeah. And I think the user that you read from raises an interesting question of what if new entrants to the space actually enjoy these corporate projects? More. And there's a good chance they will because the IP is something they're familiar with. There's trust. And obviously, blockchain is also supposed to be lauded for its trust layer, right? Yeah. But what I'm saying is that, like, in the cultural aspect, it's about who controls distribution to create narratives, to create stories. And, and it's a lot to expect of new entrants to be like, yeah, I totally believe in this bigger mission, this bigger ideology. Yeah. But the thing is that in light of one's inability to monetize a profile picture they buy from Artifact, who is now owned by Nike, that might disincentivize people from putting money into those projects Mm -hmm. and then lean into other ones that do provide some sort of financial upside. Mm -hmm. But then that also changes because it's like it's no longer about the cultural value so much as it is about a bit of cultural value meets financial value. I happened to, I wasn't going out looking for this, but I happened to read an interesting Twitter thread by Russ Benson, who you might know or, yeah, Yeah. share similar circles with, a former Slam and Complex editor. And he wrote, I think with both sneakers and NFTs, there is an idealized vision of what the, quote, culture is, and then there is the reality of it. And supporters of both choose to focus on the former and mostly ignore the latter. Continuing this thread, most of both are dominated by bragging rights based on manufactured scarcity and the quest for immediate profit, period. All the talk of, quote, community is essentially cover at this point. The end game is to sell you more and more and more things. Yes, the end game in sneakers was always selling, but never has it been so blatantly stripped down to selling so functionally where buying, not wearing, is the pinnacle moment, which, from a brand standpoint, makes sense. Once they sell a pair, their direct involvement is done. NFTs, especially brand-based ones, simply refine this moment down even further. Rather than a pair of sneakers, you are literally buying the Gotham screen. You're paying for bragging rights to say you own something anyone can right-click save. And he continues, and he's not a NFT supporter. I don't know if that's indicative of his stance on web3 but at least from this thread you can interpret that he's 
very critical I think what, of this corporate NFT overlapping yeah. space. And I agree. I actually. would say that it, th- those are comments, I think, align with the collectability side of things right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think he points out some interesting aspects of the financial side, which you were talking about. And the honestly, the not encouraging to me the quite depressing aspect of this where it is just about that moment of purchase and the thing that stuck with me from the thread is what he says about like it's not even, and it's not that i'm a, a romantic about physical items but so much as that the focus is so much on that point of purchase which is not something i want to see people be gathering around it's like you get excited about the fact you won the ability to buy something yeah in a way one thing that i do think is it's like not even a celebration as you know as you said earlier it's not a celebration of making anything at all it is about celebrating a purchase like an exchange of money and that feels very hollow to me yeah and another thing too is that in light of the Nike's involvement coming into it, like I think one thing that was always championed in the Web3 space was that we were doing things that had collective community upside. But in this instance, you're participating in a financial relationship that benefits not necessarily your community, but Nike shareholders, right? And that's a big thing to, to really... Um, I do think that Web3 purist projects will have to really think hard about how they can provide value because of the tools that all these other sort of corporate backed crypto projects have at their disposal. And that just means like intense amounts of consumer data to know what they like and they don't like, you know, to sell them into that space. Maybe they were never going to buy these other projects anyways, but I think just like that's how they're going to kind of onboard them. Right. I think the next, as, as someone, as some people have said, Next 100 million users aren't going to come from a bunch of different random crypto projects. It's probably going to be from some big, big corporation bringing their user base into that world. And I think the next thing, too, is that the resources that these people have allow them to just optimize and acquire to move much quicker than a startup in the space. So it was interesting because like a lot of these people in the realm of streetwear we're all like really excited about this artifact acquisition but i think once the dust is settled that's kind of the nice thing about letting the dust settle before commenting is kind of collecting all the information you soon realize that maybe it's not as good as you think it was i don't know if this is so totally naive of me to suggest but these web3 purist projects the success for me will come from if they can find a way to appeal to people beyond consumption, beyond financial or speculative value. Like when you say value, value can come from different things that you provide that people find satisfying. Good place to cap off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makein.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. 
If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Megan. Patreon members get access to the Megan Discord where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in these conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.